We are going to be in Matthew chapter 13 today. So if you brought your Bible, you could turn to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, we're continuing our series through the parables of Jesus. And uh, thought I'd, I thought I'd begin with this question. Uh, have you ever gotten your identity stolen? Anybody ever steal your identity? Pretend to be you to try to some evil advantage for themselves? Uh, past couple weeks, my identity was being used to email even some people at Grace Community Church, people I know somehow, they know who I know. And uh, not too long ago, I, I, got a, I got a text message that said, hey, I'm sorry I missed your message. Call me back. And I looked at that message and I looked at that person and I thought, you know, I am pretty sure I didn't message them. And then I got an email. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't catch your thing. And it uh, turns out someone used an email that was one period off of my email with my family's picture on it and emailed, I don't, who knows how many people, asking, hey, could, uh, could I connect with you shortly? And then if anybody said yes or sure or what do you need, they would say, oh, you know, I'm in between meetings and um, I just need you to buy gift cards for me. Has anybody, did anybody get that in here? Right, some, some of us, the best of us, no. Uh, yeah, so here, uh, it's, it's wrong. It's called I, identity theft. It's a, it's a category of identity, identity theft. It's like email spoofing or email impersonating. And, um, and there's nothing I can do about it. I've tried before to get people to stop doing it, to cancel those emails. The only thing I can do is to get other people to mark those emails as phishing because apparently no company wants to do anything except let the algorithm tell it that this person's phishing. And um, they're phishing for identity, they're phishing for information. And uh, I just want to make it a public declaration. I will never, ever, 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 ever ask you for money or gift cards, ever. I will never do it. And don't be like my kids that are like, oh, what if the house is on fire? No exception, never. Right? Like, oh, uh, can we touch the air? None of that, no. Never, ever will I ask you for money. Never believe in those things. Um, it's, it's a sort of, uh, it's, a, it's identity theft. It's a sort of scam. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission, there's a government website, ftc.gov. They, uh, they define, according to them, they define phishing with PH, uh, phishing is a type of online scam that targets consumers by sending them an email that appears to be from a well-known source, a.k.a. pastor. Why they target me, I don't know. It asks the consumer to provide personal identifying information, then a scammer uses the information to open new accounts or invade the consumer's existing accounts or also a subcategory of getting gift cards or some kind of monetary value from you because those are non-traceable. And uh, it's false impersonation uh, with the purpose of greed. False impersonation so that they can gain uh, stealing, but they, they can gain from you. And similarly, the devil uses false impersonation in the world to scam people and to get them from joining the kingdom of God, if that makes sense, which is in a parable that we're going to look at in Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds. It's the parable of the weeds. Now, some people call it the parable of the wheat and the tares, if you've heard this. Uh, the disciples called it the parable of the weeds. And... Um, 
It's about Satan using false impersonation in order to scam the world. And so if you would turn to Matthew chapter 13, I'll, I'll share it in three categories. We'll have the parable, then we'll look at Jesus' explanation, then we'll look at the application, because that's the order in which Jesus gives this to us. And so you have the parable itself. Uh, in Matthew 13, verse 24, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So Jesus begins this parable. In Matthew 13, there are seven parables that Jesus gives. I believe this is the third one. He, the first parable is the parable of the soils, which we looked at. Then he moves to this parable, the parable of the weeds. And so he gives them this parable, and it begins with, there's a man who's sowing seed in his field. And I don't know if you're okay with marking your Bibles or highlighting, but if you're taking notes, his field is important in interpreting the parable. It belongs to the man. It is his field. And so he sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. So this was a common occurrence in Jesus' day. It says, while the men were sleeping or the people were sleeping, they weren't lazy, they weren't taking an unsolicited nap. This is at nighttime, and this would happen. An enemy would come and sow what's called false wheat. Uh, Darnell is this, uh, this black wheat type thing because the grains turn really dark. They're not the same as, as other grains. An enemy would come in and sow these weeds within a neighbor's field that he was upset with. Now, this might be hard for you to understand, but just think about it. Have you ever been kind of cross with a neighbor of yours, not happy with a neighbor of yours, maybe not happy with someone in town, or you felt like someone was attacking you, sabotaging you, saying negative things about you, giving you a hard time. And maybe if you're human and you have human nature, you might think, you know, I'm just gonna cut their part of the tree that's hanging over my fence and it's gonna look ugly. I'm just, it's my property. You know, you ever get mad, like, don't you? And you just get at odds with your neighbor. Well, this would happen. This has always happened. Happened from the first brothers, Cain and Abel. They getting cross with each other. And so this has always been human nature. And so an enemy comes in and he would sow, like the picture on the left is actually a picture of wheat and darnel put together. Uh, this word uh, zizion, this Greek word for weed, refers to this weed called a darnel. It's called tares in some of yours. But it looks just like wheat until the fruit appears. Until it starts showing the grains and it starts seeding, as farmers would say, it looks almost identical to wheat. And so an enemy comes in and he sowed weeds among the wheat. Uh, this was so common back in their day that the Roman Empire had a law against this. If you were found to sow weeds in your neighbor's wheat to sabotage them, uh, you could uh, incur some serious punishment, even death. And so the Romans were serious about this. That's how often it happened. And it says he sowed weeds among the wheat. That word among is a strong emphasis uh, of, of a word, like that preposition. 
It means all throughout the wheat. So at nighttime, this enemy sneaks in. And he's like, I'll show my neighbor what's what, and I hate him, and I'm going to ruin his crop by sowing weeds all throughout it. And then he left, because that's what enemies do. They're cowards. Anyway, he leaves. Verse 26, when the plants sprouted and produced grain, now that's important. It says, when they sprouted and produced grain, because until they do, you don't know what's what. You can't really tell the difference without really fine-tooth comb type deal. Uh, when the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. Now, the weeds were always there with the wheat. It just looked like wheat. But once the fruit is shown, ah, those, that's not real wheat, that's Darnell. Uh, it's called a mimic weed. Uh, the reason why it was dangerous, the reason why enemies would do this, the grains look darker than normal wheat, uh, but what you would do is you would grind them up like normal grain. You would grind it up. They'd make it into a flour, even though it's darker. And they would feed it to people, and it would make them intoxicated. It was like a drug. It was like a weed that we know about today, also called weed. Um, it, it, made, it makes them dizzy. It makes them off balance. It makes them nauseous. The official name, I know you can't see it in the left picture, but it's uh, telementum, which comes from the Latin word for drunk. Uh, the Greek word itself comes from a Hebrew word that means fornication, so it's an imposter. It's not the real thing. It's called something else other than false wheat, but I don't use the word in place of false if you study this, but it's a false wheat. It's a mimic weed, um, and in this picture on the right, Christian artistry is so amazing. Now, we might have to jump into another denomination to get a lot of it, but if you look at this artistry on the right, it's a painting uh, painted in the 1500s by uh, Heinrich Fulmarer, and I'm pretty sure that's not how you pronounce it, but he, uh, he drew this in the 1500s. It's really supposed to be nighttime, but in order to get the picture, that figure in the middle, if you can't see, uh, it has a rooster's legs, uh, noting to evil, and the, the person has horns and a little beak for a nose, and it's got that object, that figure has a bag of seed, that's Darnell seed, and he's in the enemy's field sowing weeds. And so all throughout Christian history, this particular parable uh, has been, you know, they've made paintings about because it's the enemy going in the field that belongs to someone else and sowing imposter wheat. And so that's, that's part of the parable. Verse 27, the landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? So we find out about this landowner that he's rich. This isn't your average everyday family. Every family was involved in agriculture in this day. In some way, you had some kind of garden, you had some kind of farming, because that was the time, that was the culture. But this owner, this, this master, this, this, uh, this landowner was obviously rich enough to have servants that sowed and reaped for him that we learned in the story. So he's a rich landowner. The servants are out there. The 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 Darnell are finally producing the grains. They look a little bit different than wheat. They know what it is. It's not wheat. It's an imposter. They go to the landowner and they say, Landowner, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? Now, here's what this is teaching us. If there were just a few weeds 
in the land, would they have said this? No. That's, a, that's an important part of this parable. Every field has weeds in it. Every field. They didn't have chemicals like we do today. And even you, I bet you there's weeds in your lawn and you hate them, right? I do. I hate weeds. I just hate them so much. And uh, there's weeds everywhere. If there were just a few weeds within their land, they would have said, every day, this happens, no big deal. But that's why we pointed that word among earlier, I think it's in verse 25, it was all throughout. So there were weeds everywhere. Every wheat stalk seemed to be connected to another weed. It was so invasive, and they knew this is not everyday weeds. Something happened. Where did the weeds come from? And then the, the landowner, the master said, an enemy did this. This would happen. An enemy would come in to try to sabotage the man's land. So they said to him, the master, so do you want us to go and pull them up? I mean, hey, we, we can see that it's not weed. I know how to take care of the problem, right? I don't have a master's in weed eating, but I can tell you right now, let's just get rid of them. I mean, we don't want them. Let's get them out of here. But this is where the story is significant in what it's teaching. The landowner, the, land the master says, no, don't pull up the weeds, no, he said, when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. If you take the weeds out, they're so intertwined that you will damage the good wheat. You will destroy what I hope to be fruitful, what we want to bear fruit and be fruitful. If you get rid of the weeds, you will also end up hurting the wheat. Leave it. Leave it alone. Don't pull them up because it can hurt the wheat. Then verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, so he has servants that sow and reap for him. I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. He's got a purpose for the wheat and the fruit of the wheat. Uh, so wait until the harvest. Why wait until the harvest? Well, uh, once the wheat has seeded, and it dies per se, then you got to pull it up anyway. It's done its fruit. That's as much as it can give. It's over. So once it is over producing more fruit, go ahead. If you take up the weeds, it doesn't matter if you take up the wheat. We got to take up the wheat anyway. Wait until the harvest. Well, of course this makes sense. Any of us could understand this parable. If we were them, we'd be like, okay, I understand the story. But it doesn't make sense spiritually. There's something about this parable to them that they still don't get. They don't know how to equate this to the spiritual truth. So it brings us to the second part, Jesus' explanation. After a couple of parables that we'll talk about next week, it says in verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house. Jesus leaves the crowd. So he begins outside talking to believers and non-believers alike. Then after he gives the parables, he comes inside of a house. We don't know whose house it is exactly, probably Peter's, but no one knows. Anyway, he comes into the house, and his disciples approached him and said, uh, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. You kind of get a sense, as they constantly ask Jesus to explain it to them, that they're kind of like me. I hear the truth, and it's like, oh, okay, okay. Uh, what does that mean? What? what 
I, I could imagine being one of the disciples and being like, bye, everybody. Yeah, we're going to go in. We're going to eat. We know all things. No worries. Okay, Jesus, tell me, what in the world are you talking about? Explain to us this parable. And, and notice this. What do they title the parable? Jesus does not give a title for the parable. He doesn't say, here, let me tell you the parable of the wheat and the tares. He doesn't do that. The disciples give a title for the parable which tells us what they were thinking. Where is the emphasis? What are, they, what are they mulling over in their mind about, oh, what is Jesus talking about? Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. You know what they don't say? Explain to us the parable of the wheat. They know what the wheat is. They think they're the wheat. You know what they're waiting for? Someone to get rid of that stinking, awful weed. Just get rid of the weeds. The Jews were ready for a Messiah to come and bring the kingdom. We're sick of persecution. We're sick of opposition. We're sick of those sinners, those lost people, those Gentiles, those evil, wicked nations. We're the wheat. When is it going to happen? Is it now going to be when you fulfill the kingdom? Are you now going to fulfill your kingdom? Are your, is your kingdom going to be fulfilled now? It's a constant question for them. When are you going to come and take care of this? We're ready to get rid of these weeds. So they call it, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. That's where their mind is focused. Verse 37, he replied, the one who sows good seed is the son of man. Now, that he, he just jumps straight into deep theology. He says, I'm going to explain the parable. The one who, the landowner, the master, the one who sows the good seed, that's the son of man. That title, son of man, was used almost exclusively by Jesus. In the New Testament, as you read the son of man reference, every time except one time, it's used by Jesus himself to refer to himself. This was his favorite title of himself, son of man. It, it speaks about his humanness the incarnation of God. He was the son of God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning, but he referred to himself with us the most, the most frequent as the son of man. He relates to us in our humanness. According to Hebrews, he understands our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way. He is the son of man. He knows what it's like to be human. He became human in order to die, to sacrifice, to suffer for you and for me. He wanted to become human. It's, it's, a, it's also a term of his messianic uh, or his messiahship. He's the Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it tells us that the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is the Messiah prophesied about, the one who's going to bring the culmination of the kingdom. So he tells them, you're looking for the one that's going to make this all right? Don't be mistaken. I am the one. I am the son of man. And I came to die for you. I came to establish the kingdom. All those things are true. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. And then in verse 38, and the field is the world. Now, this is really important. Uh, when you interpret this parable, it's possible to read about the wheat and the weeds, these imposters that look just like wheat and say, oh, okay. Jesus is saying that 
the wheat are the believers, the children of the kingdom, we find out, and the weeds, that's lost people in the church. But you can't interpret it that way because Jesus says the field is the world. So he's talking specifically in context about the world is the place, not the church gathering. So what he's saying is, I'm placing good seed in the world. I'm the son of man and the field is the world. That's where lost people and, not, and you know, we call it the saints and the ain'ts. Uh, the difference between them is the S, that stands for salvation. The saints used to be ain'ts, but they got saved, so now they're saints. And so you got the saints and the ain'ts. Uh, and, and Jesus says, those two are gonna be together in the world, not necessarily in the church. That's important because what he's about to say, you don't apply to church life. And that's important. There is church discipline. There's, you know, Paul talks about delivering over uh, someone for the destruction of their flesh, but the salvation of their soul. Out of love, making sure that the church is not confused about who's a part of the church. Lost people are not a part of the church, meaning they don't belong as children of God within the church family. They're loved, we love them, we want them to be saved, but that is not what Jesus is referring to, and we know that because he says the field is the world. So he's talking about the world, and it's all throughout the world. The good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. Children of the kingdom. In verses 38 to 39, the weeds are the children of the evil one. Before I was 16 years old, I was a child of the evil one. Uh, it's not popular. I've mentioned this before recently, but we understand why it's not popular. We know why it is, and we have to be gentle and understanding. Every human being is not a child of God, according to the Bible. Now, they're made in God's image. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. They have value, and we love them, and we treat them as if they're part of our family. We love our neighbors ourselves, we love the world, every single person. But in the Bible, it never refers to lost people as children of God. Instead, it calls them children of the evil one, like here in Matthew 13, children of the kingdom of darkness, like what Colossians talks about, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And, uh, and also in Romans, it refers to them as children of wrath. So I'm talking about me here because I understand the tension with this. I was born a child of the devil, a child of wrath, a child of the kingdom of darkness. And the reason why I sing and I lift my hands and I bow before the Lord is because I should have stayed that way if not for God's grace and mercy in sending his son Jesus to die on a cross in my place so that my sins can be forgiven. I was not born a child of God. And so when Jesus uses this term, he's not a meanie pants, and you don't have to beat people over the head with it, but if we want to be a healthy church family, we need to understand doctrine. We need to learn from the scriptures. Let them inform us. People are not children of God. Every person is not a child of God. According to Jesus himself and other places, we are born children of wrath, children of the evil one, children of the kingdom of darkness. It is only by grace and God's work, who he is, what he did, that we become children of God, children of light, children of the kingdom, uh, children, uh, there's another one in Ephesians. There's multiple references to us, but only after we're saved. You are not born a child of God until you're born twice. 
You have to be born again to be born a child of God. So Jesus is giving us a lot of information in this parable. The weeds are the children of the evil one. We find out these are non-believers, those that are not saved. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The, the devil, diabolos, that slanderer, that gossiper, that enemy of God. He's the one that places the weeds in the world. He wants the weeds to infest the field so that the field bows to his ways, not to the ways of God. And so, in summary, the field is the world. The master, owner, sower is Jesus, the Son of Man. The good seed or wheat are the children of the kingdom. The enemy sower is the devil. The weeds are the children of the evil one. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are Jesus' angels, minus fallen angels, not demons, but Jesus' angels. That's how Jesus explains it. Then in verse 40, Therefore, now that you know all this, Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Sobering words. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. The children of the evil is anyone who's still guilty for their sins. Anyone that has not repented of their sins and placed their faith and trust in Jesus who died on a cross, bled, suffered, died, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead. If anybody has not repented of their sins and placed their faith in him, they are children of the evil one and they're still guilty for breaking God's law. They're righteously guilty, and so there's got to be a punishment and a consequence. And Jesus says that punishment, that consequence is going to look like being bundled together and burned. And so Jesus giving this, this is not a small parable. This is not a light parable. Verse 42, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You already know what weeping is. Crying miserable, upset, gnashing of teeth doesn't mean because the pain is so great, although I'm sure it will be, that's the weeping. Gnashing of teeth in this culture, that gnashing of teeth means angry. Imagine a face that's just, oh, burning their teeth together because they're so mad at God for judging them. These are people that are upset that they're being judged. They feel like it's not fair and you don't judge me and I don't care if you're the creator. I'm not gonna treat you as Lord and creator. They are angry at the master who throws them into the blazing furnace. Uh, just a little over a week ago, I think it is now, Timothy Keller, who is a prominent figure in Christian evangelical circles in, in America, primarily or particularly the Presbyterian church, he passed away. And someone was writing about him and talking about how they loved the way that he shared the gospel. He just was an apologist at heart. And at some point, he was sharing the gospel with a group of people that were very, it was very wheat and weeds mixed together. It wasn't a church gathering. And he was sharing the gospel. And he said, you know, everybody gets what they want. If you want forgiveness, if you want your creator to forgive you, if you want to be made right with him, if you want to be full of the spirit, if you want to be made brand new, if you want to be born again, if you want all your sins to be accounted for, knowing that you can't pay for it and there's, you have done wrong, if you want forgiveness, you could have it. 
You can have it in Jesus. But if you don't want God and you want to go your own way and you want to do things your way and you want to be your own God and you want to be a lover of pleasure and you want to just satisfy yourself and you don't care about the consequences, you don't care about what he said and you want to live your own life out of pride, if you're not willing to humble yourself, you'll get what you want. If you don't want Jesus, you won't get him. You get what you want. And Jesus is giving this sobering parable to say, at the end, at the end of the age, there's going to come a time of judgment. And I will separate the wheat from the weeds. And the weeds will be burned. And the righteous, speaking of the wheat, will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. And then this is so interesting to me. Let anyone who has ears listen. Wait, Jesus, weren't you talking in the house? Wasn't this just the believers? When he gave the parable, he was speaking to the crowds, non-believers and believers alike. But this is when he's talking to the people in the house. He's talking to his disciples. Now, Judas, maybe not a believer, but the people inside the house are his close buddies, and he even tells them, if you have ears to hear, listen. Listen to these sobering words about the reality of the kingdom of heaven. This is what God's kingdom is really like. And so that's the explanation. So what do we do? What's the application? Well, number one, we learn from this parable we are placed here for a reason. Your birth was not an accident. Even if your parents said it was, they're not your creator, technically. Your birth was not an accident. And you weren't left here on accident. It says that the Son of Man is the one who sowed the good seed. He's the one who places you where you are. Um, in Acts chapter 17, verse, verse 26, from one man, God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. God's the one who places them. It's not an accident. And I know this is, you know, you, you can't stray far from, stay with the text. Another biblical truth that this reminds me of is the fact that God does have a purpose and a plan for you because you're still living. You're still breathing. He, maybe you feel like, why am I where I am? Why am I right here? Why am I still alive? Well, according to this parable, if you're a weed, it's because if you look at the New Testament, God desires for all people to be saved and he wants to turn you into wheat. Remember, all of us were Darnell at one time. We were all weeds at one time. We were converted and God has a plan for you. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, God has a plan for you, and it's called fruitfulness. God says, according to this parable, you're still here because there's still fruit to be left. The reason why you're not plucked out and it's not over for you is because God designed it and desires for you to bear fruit. He has you here for a reason. Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. We remember from Romans 12, 1, the famous verse, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. Don't conform to this world. You're not of this world. 
John chapter 17, verses 15 through 16. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays over his disciples. I am not praying, he's talking to the Father, by the way. He says, I am not praying that you, Father, take them, my disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. God has you here for a reason and does not desire to take you out of the world. He planted you on purpose. Number two, this is not a time of judgment, but evangelism. The servants were ready to take them out. Do you know what it means? It means to kill them, to take it out, to destroy it before it's fruitful, before it makes fruit, before, the, the li- before its life is naturally done, you, inter, uh, you interrupt that process and you kill it prematurely. That's what they were wanting to do. And the master said, no. Think about Jesus' patience here. Think about how he's telling you what the master is really like. Don't kill them yet. Don't take them out yet. Because you might, you're going to hurt some of the wheat. And I don't want to risk that. I love them and I want them to be fruitful. Don't do anything. Let them grow up together. You can't forcibly evict those who are different than you. You can't kill people because they're not believers. You can't prematurely take them out. In John 18, 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. I'm not here to set up a political government power that's going to take over the world. That's not my design and plan. I'm not here to fight sword with sword, gun with gun. I'm not, this is not one of those, oh, let's use fire with fire. I'm not here to establish that kind of earthly kingdom. I have a heavenly kingdom that's different than what you're expecting. Now, this is really important because you want to know why the disciples were like, explain to us the parable of the weeds and not the weed is. What have the Jews been wanting for thousands of years? What have they been wanting forever? Get rid of the infidel. Get rid of the Gentile. Let us reign. Let us have dominion. Let us have earthly power. And Jesus said, that's not my kingdom. That's not my plan. That's not how it's going to work. And you might be thinking, oh, those those Jews were kind of harsh. Well, it's been this way for all of history. I'll give you three examples. The Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades, and the reign of Bloody Mary in England. I'll just give you those three examples. If you don't know what they are, um, but all three of them are historical events that are characterized by efforts to root out individuals deemed as false believers in the world. The idea is, let's get rid of the weeds. Let's snuff them out. Let's have a world power. Let's have dominion. Let's have governmental control. Let us be in power. And if they don't like it, let us force them either to death, torment, or to false agreements. But let us be in charge. The the Spanish Inquisition, it was established in the 1400s. In 1478, there were two monarchs. You have the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand II and Aragon and Isabel I of Castile. They were aimed to identify and eliminate heresy and false converts among the population, particularly targeting Jews and Muslims who had converted to Christianity. So they wanted to know, are you really Christian? The Inquisition employed brutal methods such as torture, public execution, they, they, they tortured people to extract false confessions to maintain religious orthodoxy. 
the Inquisition was, we need a Christian power that forces people to agree with us. Doesn't work that way. That's not God's kingdom. The second, the Crusades. The Crusades were a series of military campaigns initiated by the medieval Christian church. You could say Catholic church, but it was more than the Catholics. Um, They were launched in the 11th to 13th centuries with the primary objective of recapturing the Holy Land from the Muslim control. The Muslims came in into the Middle East and they started taking control over the Holy Land and everyone else. And some, they called themselves Christians, were like, we're going to take back the land. We're going to free the Jews. We're going to make this kingdom stand. And they went and fought sword with sword. It was bloody. It was the Crusades to get rid of non-Christians. While the Crusades were framed as a holy endeavor to reclaim Christian territory, they were also accompanied by fervent zeal to eliminate perceived religious dissenters and to enforce Christian orthodoxy among the local population. You cannot force Christianity, period. You can't force it. You can't force it anywhere. Now, you can try to encourage it. You can use it. You can try to influence, and you should. Things need to be moral and right, but you cannot force salvation. You cannot force Christianity. The more you try to force it, the further you get from Jesus' plan and design. You cannot force it. These campaigns witness widespread violence, including massacres and forced conversions. I already read that. You have the reign of Bloody Mary of England in the 1500s, around 1553 to 1558. She was a devout Catholic. She wanted to store Catholicism, Christianity, and dominant faith in England. And during her reign, she just killed hundreds and hundreds, and some people say thousands of people were executed. And it was all a brutal method of religious repression and intolerance. They wanted Christianity to be the governmental power. And here's the overall thread. That is not how God's kingdom works, period, ever. It has never worked that way. How do we know? You have the whole Old Testament to say humans won't do it. We can't pull it off. We cannot save ourselves with that kind of kingdom. It will never work. Now, this doesn't mean we don't engage and interact and try to do things that are moral and right, but you cannot force salvation. You cannot force professions of faith. You cannot kill people that don't agree with you because here's the reality. The world is gonna fight with worldly weapons and you've gotta make a decision. Am I gonna fight fire with fire or am I gonna go the route of the martyrs? If they send me before the lions, am I going to reach out my hands toward heaven and say, praise God to him who I belong. He's going to judge the righteous. What is your philosophy of how the kingdom of heaven is going to be realized on this earth? It's not going to be realized, according to the Bible, through political dominance, governmental dominance. That will never, ever happen because humans are sinful. They will latch onto that dominance and abuse and torture and oppress That's what has always happened. That is the way that it works. And God says the way that you change lives is through the church being the church. The church going through and showing the love of Christ, teaching the truth, having the gifts of the Spirit. None of the gifts of the Spirit are karate. Right? Sniping. Give Give me a gift of the Spirit. That means you take dominance over another people group. It doesn't exist. It's not meant to exist. Now, 
the way our country works, we should be very involved with making sure the right thing happens. It will save lives, it will help the poor and needy. We need things that are common sense. There's other states that I'm not gonna name that have totally lost it, went totally left, decided they're gonna do things a worldly way and not a godly way, and it is destroying their people. We should not give into that. We should do everything we can rightly to fight against that, verbally, integrity-wise, but the kingdom of heaven is not gonna reign through our efforts of forcing people into Christianity. It will never work. So this is not a time of judgment to force people into these things. It's a time of evangelism, to share the good news and invite people into the kingdom. Instead of judging, Jesus is sending us out into the world uh, to be his church, his hands and feet. The world is his field, but it's our mission field, not our battleground. It, it, is a, it is a mission field in which we fight, according to Ephesians, not with weapons of this age, but with, with spiritual weapons. So it's not a time of judgment, it's a time of evangelism. Number three, our pain in this world will sanctify us. If you notice in the parable, the wheat and the weeds grow together. They incur the same weather, the same harsh climate, the same circumstances. Just because you're a child of the kingdom doesn't mean you're gonna live pain-free. You are gonna be living in turmoil just like the weeds. You are gonna have to endure everything just like them. They grow closely together. It's not till the end of the age that he's coming back to make this right. In James chapter one, verses two through four, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Endurance means you endure the pain. You endure the trial. You're not getting rid of trials. You're enduring them. Our suffering in the, and pain in this world is not gonna destroy us. In 1 Peter 5, verse 10, the, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. When? Right now? No. After you have suffered a little while. Now that's not necessarily tongue-in-cheek, but it means it's not gonna happen until the end. You are gonna have to suffer. This, what Paul calls this light momentary affliction. We are gonna have to endure affliction for a little while, but but there's gonna be an end to our pain. One day the harvest will come. John chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. I planted you here, I put you here for a reason. It's gonna stink. It's gonna be harsh. There's gonna be thorns and thistles and it's gonna be harsh. Some of you are gonna die early. Some of you are gonna endure incredible suffering. You are gonna endure pain. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Now, I didn't conquer it like a Messiah that the Jews thought was gonna come like King David and literally take over the world with this might and power and army. That's not, Jesus is like, this is a new covenant, this is a new way, I have a, this is a new age. I'm not gonna bring my kingdom in that way. I will bring it in a different way. And here's the reality. I've conquered the world. I already won. You feel like, are we losing? You, I've already won. If you follow me, you will see I've already won and I'm inviting you to be a part of my plan to save the lost. There are others. 
He is patient. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. His desire is to save people, not to create an earthly kingdom until he returns. It's never gonna happen. He doesn't want it to happen. It's not part of his plan, and you can't twist God's arm. If you think, oh, it'd be better if we just had this world power that really forced everybody to do the right thing, no, it wouldn't. If that was better, Jesus would have done it. He didn't do it. He is gonna come back at the end, though, which is number four. Jesus is coming back to sort us out. You don't have to sort people out. You don't have to judge people. This is not a time of judgment. This is a time of evangelism. This is a time of salvation. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you for this parable. Thank you for your words that challenge us, convict us, uh, step on our toes, inspire us, encourage us. We know that you have won. You have overcome the world. And uh, it's not like what they thought It's not been like what I've thought. And I'm so glad that you're in charge. We pray, Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to live as your people. Help us to be your ambassadors, your messengers of reconciliation, your ministers of hope and of the good news. Help us to be evangelists. Help us to be gifted, spiritually filled people that You build us up through your power and strength. I pray for our church. Would you help us to be your shining light in this world? Help us to humble ourselves. We submit ourselves to you again, and we pray for our church family. Help us to be your church. Help us to be your field. You're your wheat. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.